from the legendary Doolin's Irish Pub on Granville Street in the heart of downtown Vancouver, British Columbia. Welcome to episode two of a Women's World Cup Home Companion on Backheel.com. I'm Jonathan Tannenwald of Philly.com, the Philadelphia Inquirer and Daily News. I said there might be a second show, and as soon as I said that, I realized that I had to deliver on the promise. So here we are at one of the great soccer bars in one of the great soccer cities in North America as we get ready for the United States Women's National Team's group stage finale at the World Cup on Tuesday night against Nigeria, 8 o'clock on the Big Fox Over the Air Network and NBC Universo. And we've got an all-star cast of characters, and I do mean characters, here with us at the big table. Jeff Kasuf of NBC Sports and Equalizer Soccer, who was here on our first show. And we're joined also this time around by Stephanie Yang of SB Nation. Stephanie writes for Stars and Stripes FC, and I believe also for the Bent Musket. Is that right? Just the Bent Musket. You, you helped, though, with... Uh, with the Women's World Cup preview section, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Kevin McCauley, the editor, asked me to help out with that, and I was only too happy to do it. Jeff and I have fled Winnipeg at long last. Jeff is, is shaking his head. He's been up for heaven knows how long, as have I been. Um, before we get stir-crazy, we want to figure we want to get this, sh- this uh, show out of the way. Jeff, just when you thought... I was sitting there watching that corner kick at the end of the game, the U.S.-Sweden game, and I thought, this is it. This is where Rapino's going to put the ball on Wambach's head. She's going to score. Pia Sundhaga's prophecies are all going to be fulfilled. And we're going to go to Vancouver with the U.S. having six points and almost having the group stage in the bag. Instead, this game against Nigeria is going to mean a lot. Yeah, I mean, you know... I don't. I, I think we've seen the best of Nigeria, as someone else put it to us today. So I, I think, you know, unfortunately, I th- it would have been a lot better game to see the U.S. Nigeria game in that first in that opener. Um, but you know, Nigeria is going to present some problems. Really athletic team that um, you know the U.S. likes to get physical, but I don't think that they can necessarily always handle speed and always handle the chaos. Um, so we'll see. I mean, we, we've seen two shades of Nigeria, so we'll see which of those wants to show up on Tuesday. And I, I would, my hunch would be that it's the second one that showed up against Australia, which would be one with a little less bite. You were at U.S. training this afternoon. I showed up late, which was my fault because I put the address in my phone and ended up half a mile away from where I was supposed to be. I know the U.S. players aren't going to say that they're taking Nigeria lightly, but we saw what Colombia did to France, and I just wonder if that maybe focused things a little bit. Well, I mean, look, there's, I, I haven't been overly impressed with anybody in this tournament. Uh, the U.S. has been underwhelming. Germany had, you know, their first game I think you need to throw out. You know, they had, they had a half a game against Norway. Um, France, you know, as most probably know, I've been a, a France proponent. Um, you know, it's two games in, but, you know, France was showing shades of France 2011-2012, which is not a good not a good shade to have. So um, nobody's been overly impressive. I don't think any of the seeded teams have been great, um, which is, you know, I think you can call it slow starts. It probably speaks to just quality coming up among these second-tier teams, even third-tier teams. 
um, which is what you see. I mean, I was on a plane and I was able to watch Columbia, France. Did not necessarily know I was going to have a TV on that plane. And admittedly, going into the flight, wasn't overly concerned with needing to watch it. So, glad I did. Stephanie, France losing. I still think they're going to win the group in the end. But now, all of a sudden, we're talking about the potential chaos being wrought on this round of 16, Brad. Yeah, I think... Uh, I saw on Twitter that odds were ranging from 12 to 1 to 40 to 1 on Colombia beating France. But Kate Margraff wrote a really great article for ESPNW that said maybe this is just the new normal. Uh, Like Jeff said, quality is coming up amongst all the second and third tier teams. So, you know, aside from blowout results like 10 nothing from Germany with obviously mismatched opponents who have very little support and don't have a lot of time to prepare for the World Cup, when you have teams like Colombia or maybe Mexico or even Australia who are starting to get a little more support from their federation, you can see how even just a little bit of funding and support makes a huge impact. So, yeah, it's a combination of top-tier teams underwhelming and second- and third-tier teams kind of going, guess what, we're here, they're announcing their presence to the world, and if they even got a fraction of the funding that the United States or France or Germany got, who knows what kind of results we would see. Jeff, if you're Randy Waldrum sitting down there in Houston right now watching what's happening to Ecuador, I would imagine that he feels sorry for them, but I also can't help thinking if he wonders what could have been. Yeah, I wonder what could have been. I mean, I think he'd be the first to tell you they have nobody to blame but themselves. I mean, that was, you know, they didn't finish chances and then they got scored on in stoppage time in that second leg. So, um, you know, I don't know. It'd be purely speculative to guess at what TNT would do in this tournament or in that group even. Um, But, yeah, I think it's uh, live and learn for Ecuador. But, I mean, the coach is, you know, um, you talk about a 26-year-old coach. I think you come into this tournament knowing that you have to live and learn. Speaking of, of debutantes and, and living and learning, how impressive was Costa Rica getting that late goal against South Korea and, and getting a result like that? Yeah, I mean, Costa Rica Costa has been impressive. I've been impressed with Costa Rica, I, I would say, since October, but probably before, before October at qualifying. I think that, you know, Costa Rica with the right investment and the right plan in place, which maybe doesn't necessarily happen when the coach who put that in place and helped you qualify leaves six months before the World Cup, but um, with with the right investment there, I think Costa Rica is the third best team in CONCACAF if you, you know, at least maybe in in a future set. Over Mexico. Yeah, I mean, you can make the argument right now. I think you make a very valid argument. I would say probably if you asked me, or if I had to pick one, I'd probably make the argument just by the how much Mexico has gone backwards. Um, you know, they've been better this spring and in this World Cup than they were in qualifying, but qualifying they looked like they went 10 years backwards. Steph, when I asked Jeff that question about South Korea and Costa Rica, I saw you just completely put your head in your hands. Why? Well, I am Korean, and I always like to see the motherland do well. Um, 
my, in fact, my mother sent me like a, a weeping emoji after the game. You would have thought that they had lost the whole shebangabang instead of just tying. But that game was Korea's to lose, I feel like. Costa Rica, of course, was pressing really hard until the end. All Korea had to do was maintain the lead. But Costa Rica fought. They fought so hard. You have to respect that. And Korea didn't. They were just kind of content to sit back, try to absorb the pressure. They didn't get forward a lot. You know, in a World Cup, especially with teams like that where the margin is so thin, if you don't press every advantage you have and kind of just are content to sit there and try to preserve things, then, you know, you kind of get what you deserve. So that's why I put my head in my hands. I want to swing it back around to the United States' group, and I want to talk about Sweden because they're in some trouble. I mean, if they beat Australia, they're probably safe. In fact, you'd have to think we're almost certain that they're safe. But you think Pia Sundhaga is feeling... I mean, not that Pia Sundhaga has ever been one to feel pressure in her life because she's such a laid-back personality. But I just wonder if she's feeling a little bit right now because of the situation that they're stuck in having drawn two games. Yeah. I mean, she's not going to tell you. Well, she might tell you. She likes to talk. But Sweden was easily the worst team through round one in Group D. Um, Nigeria was poor enough in round two that I think, you know, you can make an argument for that. But, um, you know, I think I haven't honestly kept up with what Swedish media is pushing as narrative. But at least in this country, in the U.S., on this continent, there seems to be a lack of attention on the fact that Sweden's in very real danger of coming out of this group. Possibly in last. I mean, I mean, Nigeria is probably not going to get a result against the U.S., but not getting out of this group, which is obviously a huge failure for them. One of the reasons why the attention on Sweden, Stephanie, has been paid the way it has been paid is because we've been through one of the great episodes of Mind Games in all the years that I've been covering women's soccer. And I know some people deep within the Woso community think all this stuff with Pia was, was overblown. I thought it was tremendous fun, and I thought it was worth magnifying. And, and you wrote a little bit about this in the story. You, you wrote for SB Nation about not coddling the U.S. team anymore. I, I thought what Pia did, first of all, it worked, and, and by and large. And second of all, it was good for the game to have a little bit of a media frenzy, even if it was an artificial one, because it brought up some attention that they deserve. I agree on some level that it was encouraging because it means when media latch on to this stuff, it's because they know there's an audience for it. You're not going to see people write stories about stuff that aren't going to get clicks online. So obviously, a lot of the media thought, people are going to want to read this, so we have to write about it. So that was encouraging on some level. The other thing, though, is I don't necessarily know that Pia was playing mind games. She seems like a very what-you-see-is-what-you-get kind of person where... Um, for example, the United back when she was coach of the United States, and they were blowing out some team during qualifiers. I don't remember what, but they were winning against like Dominican Republic or something like 12, 13, 14, and nothing. And every single time the United States scored, she would jump up and score like they had beaten Germany in the final of a World Cup. So I think that's demonstrative of her personality, where it's just she's all surface. You know, her emotions really live that close to the surface. She's a living Muppet. So there's there's not that much artifice. And so I think 
maybe some of it was mind games, but I think some of it was literally just Pia saying exactly what was coming to her off the top of her head. Jeff, I, I am a, I am a cynical, cranky East Coast conspiracy theorist, etc., etc., etc. When she got asked to uh, reflect on her comments in the New York Times and, and uh, the reaction to them, and she said, uh, "Could you please repeat them to me?" Uh, that was when the the flag went up in my head, saying that I think I know exactly what she's doing here. And look, I think by and large, look, whether or not you think that Jill Ellis refused the bait or whatever it was, because I thought it would have been to Pia's advantage for the U.S. to start Abby Wambach, and I thought that Pia was trying to bait the U.S. into doing it. I still think she was trying to pull something. Well, I think my general takeaway, and I told you this while we were in that fine city of Winnipeg, was that I think this whole thing was pretty misconstrued in in a lot of ways. Um, I think... The comments in the Times were Pia just talking. I mean, she talks. I don't think she was talking to put anybody down. I don't think she was, in some cases, I think she was probably talking, maybe not realizing how it may sound or how it may print. Um, Yeah, you know, you and I sat in that press conference and she had a little bit of fun, but she's a fun person. I mean, I don't think that there was anything there that wasn't her. Yeah, there, there were some, she knows what she's doing, but I took away the comments in the Times, the comments from the press conference, as fairly genuine, and, and the main thing that I took from, you know, a lot of our colleagues, I guess, that maybe don't interact with, or didn't interact with Pia as much, that, you know, you can see, something can read a lot different, as we've learned a lot in this past week in a lot of scenarios, Something reads a lot different than the way you and I hear it in the mix zone or in a press conference, um, and there's certain ways to frame things. And I don't, I didn't take anything she said as trash talking. Um, I, I think it was overplayed, frankly. I've said that, but you know, I get why it was. I was on the radio down in North Carolina from Winnipeg, which was a nice way to pass the time for a half an hour. Talking, the ho- the producer of the show was an old summer camp friend of mine. And I watched the 99 final. Now, granted, it was an all-boys camp, but I watched the 99 final on a projection screen in, like, a, a, a gathering area for some of the campers. And there were, like, five people in there. I have a hunch that if the U.S. makes the final, in that same space, they'll have the game on again, and there will be a lot more than five people. And one of the reasons why I think that step is because within the evolution of women's soccer, And we've seen this with the American Outlaws, which I'm going to be writing about in the coming days. We've seen this in a lot of different ways, including the criticism that this U.S. team gets. Now more than ever, it's soccer. It's not women's, it's soccer, and I think that's a compliment. Yeah, I think the team has kind of entered the cultural consciousness, and it's at a level where it's not like a gimmick, or it's not something that's so unique because, oh, it's women playing. Now it's like... Uh, I mean, Fox kind of bought into the whole scenario with, if you watched the World Cup last summer, it's not over for the United States. And they're put, you know, U.S. soccer is really pushing that one nation, one team angle really hard. Now, how closely they actually stick to it in practice, that's a different conversation. But the thing is, we're at a point now where, in the cultural consciousness, I think the women's team is starting to merge into the men's team so that it's just... United States soccer. If you root for the United States, 
then you root for the team, and that means men's, women's. There's no gender involved. It, we're getting there. I mean, obviously, support right now is kind of gendered, but we're getting there. The conversation is moving there. That that, uh, that ad about America being out for revenge. I remember when that came out. I'm like, on whom? On FIFA? I don't. I don't know. They got the revenge on FIFA already without even having to kick a ball in the tournament. So, um, we've talked about the U.S. We've talked about France. We've talked a little bit about Germany. Two teams that we haven't talked about yet on the show, Jeff, and let's start with Japan. I know you've said that uh, a lot of the powerhouses have struggled some, and Cameroon gave Japan a great game, but on the whole, I think Japan's still looking pretty good right now. Yeah, I mean, look, I think we we could joke about my brackets here because I had a France-Japan final, but um, it's very early. I'll say that, but Japan, um, you know... I think it's back to the same points. I mean, Japan fits into the same category of nobody is really impressed yet. And I think that maybe in Japan's case, it's a little bit more of a uh, a surprise factor of Cameroon versus a U.S. that has underwhelmed um, a France that I don't know what that was from France on Saturday against Colombia. Um, You know, Japan, I think, Japan's in an interesting time because... Japan was, in relative terms to being a world power, nothing before June of 2011. I mean, they were a team that every time but once had flopped out in the group stage. Um, And, you know, they go on this miraculous run. Obviously, all the human interest that's inspired by, you know, all the tragedy that, that had gone on there. And immediately they're vaulted into the conversation of, a top four team in the world and they are but they're fine this is the first world cup i mean the olympics obviously right after that first world cup that they're entering with that expectation so um there's as only the other few teams in the world that are in that conversation can speak to there's a certain amount of pressure to that but if they win their group now if france doesn't win their group then this thing gets shaken up a little bit but if japan wins its group they're sitting pretty for a while in the knockout rounds, I think. Yeah. Uh, you're not going to bait me into another draw conversation. But, yeah, there, there are uneven sides of the bracket, for sure. The other team worth talking about is Canada. And I think John Herdman... How much are we talking about? I think John Herdman's a really good coach. But I can tell that Christine Sinclair is doing too much. Part of that is because Diana Matheson isn't all the way there yet. But on our last show, Jeff, we talked about the Netherlands being a dark horse. I, from the start of this whole thing, pegged the Canada-Netherlands game as a huge game. And there's going to be a lot on the line when those two teams get together in Montreal. Well, at the risk of being thrown out of this country, Canada has been dreadful through two games. Um, I don't think anybody's going to disagree with me. No, but I mean, you know, I think the goals have always been lofty. I think we're seeing that exemplified through two games that, um, you know, I had them going to a semifinal by way of a very easy draw. And I said it after that game, or I don't even know what day we're at at this point, a few days back. 
um, against New Zealand, even with the easy draw, I mean, this is not even a quarterfinal team. It's, it's not good. It's a lot of looking for Sinclair. We've seen the, you know, the, the method that can Sinclair finish, and if she doesn't, there's not much else. Like you said, Matheson's hurt. Tancredi is not the second striker that's going to do it. Um, and, and it comes a lot. I think this gets overlooked that it comes a lot down to putting that on the shoulders of Sophie Schmidt, who at times carries them equally to Sinclair, really. Um, but neither of them are doing it right now. It can kick in for sure, but two games in, they're not impressive at all. Stephanie, I, I agree with Jeff in, in that Sophie Schmidt has the potential to be a great player. We've seen clearly what they're missing without Diana Matheson on the field, but I don't think there's any way around saying the fact that Melissa Tancredi has not played well so far. Melissa Tancredi has been a complete non-factor. I mean, I'm a Canadian fan. No, secondary, secondary to the United States, obviously. Please don't. <laughs> Please don't deport me from the country. But you have to admit, Melissa Tancredi, she kind of stepped away from the national team to finish a chiropractic degree because, as we all know, after soccer, most women don't really have a career that they don't have a lot of, you know, millions of dollars to fall back on. So she's going to be a chiropractor. And then she tried to come back, and I don't think she ever found that step again. So without Melissa Tancredi, they have to look at Foligno and Leon, and neither one of them in the past two, three years has really shown all that much consistency. Every once in a while, we see something like Foligno scored a hell of a goal in the Olympics. Um, but other than that, there's really no one. And I don't understand what Herdman's reluctance is to play Jesse Fleming. He's got this wonder kid on the bench who could helpfully, could hopefully revitalize the midfield in the absence of Diana Matheson. But we didn't see her against New Zealand. They were clearly struggling. They needed some kind of creative spark. Melissa Tancredi wasn't doing it. Foligno, Sinclair, they weren't doing it. So Sophie Schmidt was trying, but she wasn't quite getting there. Where was Jesse Fleming? Jeff, I'll ask you that same question. Where was Jesse Fleming? Because John Herdman has never been reluctant to play young players. He's got a starlet on the rise in Kadisha Buchanan. What do you think it is with Jesse Fleming not playing if she's a player whose talents they need on the field? Uh, I'm not sure why she wasn't on the field, frankly. Um, I think they could have used her. You know, I don't think that she's shown any propensity for nerves. Obviously, she hasn't played well. She's on her third World Cup in a year. This is her senior one, obviously. But I haven't seen anything to suggest that she can't handle a big moment. This is obviously the biggest yet. But we'll see if he turns to her in game three. Maybe he has some nerves there. And to be fair, Sophie Schmidt, Desiree Scott, it's not exactly like he's you know, playing some no-names in front of her. So, um, you know, we'll see. I don't, I, I don't have a great answer for why she's not in the match. As, as we start to come towards the end of the show here, I, I want to bring it back to the United States and bring up something that Carly Lloyd told me um, a couple hours before we cut this show. And it's about our favorite subject and not Hope Soul or other favorite subject which is the artificial turf and that she's going to be very interested to see how the polytan at BC Place plays because the turf in Winnipeg was really short and Jeff you and I discussed this earlier 
But in the context of the curf- of the turf discussion in this World Cup, it's not just that these games are being played on artificial turf. It's that there's no uniform standard for the artificial turf in this tournament. So you've got a big difference between Vancouver and Winnipeg and Montreal and so on and so forth. Or at least that's what the players think. The fans at home, the television viewers might not see it, but I think there's some validity to it. What do you think? Well, I was at BC Place when Japan opened up their group stage play, and they were fine. Their first touch was impeccable as usual. They had a lot of good combination play in small spaces, so it's not impossible. And the thing is, it's not like it's going to be a surprise for the teams coming in to be like, there's going to be turf, and it's probably going to be varying in standards across all the nations, so you need to be prepared for it. Um, I agree that there's probably some disadvantage because, you know, there's an instinctive component to playing soccer where if you're used to a certain surface, your body automatically knows how to adjust and react to certain things going on around you. But the other part of being a great team in a great tournament is adjusting to factors that other teams can't. So, you know what, I'm not going to be too impressed by excuses of the turf was different and we couldn't... Because you know what? If the turf's bad for you, then it's bad for the other team. So, if you can't adjust to it and they can, then who was really the stronger team in that competition? And and that's part of what Carly said to me also, that they know they have to adjust and and they're ready to do it. And I, I certainly think... A player like Carly is never going to make that kind of excuse. And a lot of the U.S. players are not going to make that kind of excuse. Last question. Which team finishes second in Group D? In Group D, it's got to be Australia, the way it's looking now. Australia has looked fantastic. Um, I don't know a lot of people who predicted they would look this good, except for maybe Anno Dong from the women's game. Just getting people a little bit of heat for that on Twitter. But... They've looked great. They've got scoring kind of locked down. I mean, Kai Simon was fantastic in the last game. They've got a whole stable full of threats lining up behind her. Their defense hasn't looked terribly shaky, and that was kind of the major question coming in. I've got it. I've got my money on Australia. Yeah, short and sweet. Australia's midfields have been the best in Group D. They'll be plus one on Sweden, who's been poor in the midfield, and I, I think they'll own it again. I'm going to pick Sweden only because I just can't see Laura Shellian doing absolutely nothing for a third straight game. Maybe she will again. I've been extremely surprised by her lack of impact. And I've watched Caroline Sager, Caroline Sager play for a long time because she played for the Philadelphia Independence. But I did not expect Sager, Sager to be carrying the attacking burden on this team. We'll see. Anyway, this was great. Lots of fun. Thank you to the Vancouver Southsiders, whose house we are in here at Doolin's. Uh, It is one of the great soccer establishments in this great soccer city of Vancouver, British Columbia. And uh, again, 8 o'clock on Tuesday night on Fox and NBC Universo, the United States and Nigeria, the U.S. playing to win the group and save me and Jeff an enormous amount of headaches as we try to figure out where we're going next. Thank you very much for listening.